Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. If you are here, present, with us, if you are online, thank you for being here. I actually, before I go any farther, have to say, it is my 12th wedding anniversary today, and... And I think at first, whenever I found out I was speaking on my anniversary, me and my wife were like, ah, you have to speak on your anniversary. But I think this actually works in her favor because I am not the guy that posts this long paragraph on Facebook saying, oh, I love you. It's been so many good years. I'm not that guy, okay? So in 12 years, this is the first time that there has been a public kind of statement before people, okay? about my marriage and how excited and happy and and just blessed I am. And it has been 12 amazing years for me, uh, probably 12 agonizing years for my wife having to put up with me. You think I'm joking, okay? You think I'm joking. My staff prefer my wife over me so much in the youth department, okay? That I actually have tried kind of half kiddingly this, this smear campaign on my wife to them, like, you don't know, but when she's not here in church, like she's horrible to me, okay? Like she is so mean at home. She's like so demanding and nagging all the time, okay? And no joke, I quote Lydia, associate pastor of student ministry. This is what she said to me. Mike, even if we found you dead in your house, we would say, what did Mike do to make Beth angry enough that she murdered him? Okay? So, babe, 12 amazing years. Uh, Thank you so much for being married and putting up with with me and my goofiness. Let's get back to the mixtape. This is week two. And like Daniel, I am too young to remember an actual mix cassette tape. I am what we call an elder millennial, okay? That means that I am like right on the top edge of the millennial uh, category generation. And so my mixtapes were mixed CDs. And the reason that this song kind of stood out to me is this is one of my last mixed CDs that I ever got. Right around the time that I'm graduating college, uh, The Fray has just written their first album, And uh, I just remember kind of over that summer listening to it over and over and over again and just enjoying their sound. And in this song, uh, Isaac Slade, the lead singer and songwriter, is asking questions. He, He, in an interview, says that the reason this song is written is because it felt like every single time he had to pick up the phone from a friend or from a family member. He was getting some type of message about tragedy that was taking place in his life. And so he writes this song. He, he, he imagines this moment where he is out walking on the street and he runs into God. And although maybe I disagree with some of the theology of it, he runs into God on the street and God says, ask me anything. And he asks some questions in this song. Where have you been? Why do I have to wait? Why haven't I heard anything from you? You haven't called me. You haven't left me any messages. Like, what's going on here? These deep questions that I have thought, and maybe you have thought as well. 
Statements like, God, you seem a little late right now. Why have you been silent in my life or in the lives of those that I love? Why aren't you intervening in a way that benefits me as a follower of you? Questions that Slade is wrestling with and questions that we are also wrestling with as well. These deep questions that come out of the soul when it is in mourning, when it's in anguish, when it's in grief. And today, I want to be kind of upfront with you as always. I'm not trying to, I guess you could say, comprehensively deal with this and, and for there to be a nice little bow wrapped up on whatever is going on in your life right now. I actually just kind of want to get the conversation started and just get us moving on this and see what some keys to this process would look like when we find ourselves asking the same questions that Isaac Slade was asking in this song. What do we do when we find ourselves realizing that we desperately need God and yet he is the last person that we would want to talk to in that moment. When it feels as if his very hand is against us. I, I on Friday mornings, meet with a, uh, a junior hire that asked me to do some discipleship, and we have been going through small books of the Old Testament. He's in junior high. We're not trying to bite off like Isaiah and go through like a major prophet. And so we've, we've been kind of going through these small books, and we got to Ruth. And in Ruth, there's actually someone that is agonizing through these questions and these topics as well. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, is forced to leave Bethlehem because of a famine. We find all of this out right in the front, very first chapter. Her and her husband are forced to leave Bethlehem, their hometown. They head to Moab. And when they head to Moab, they take their two sons with them. And we find out that when they get to Moab, at some point, Ruth's husband actually passes away. And then her two sons get married, right? Her two sons get married to two, two Moabite women. And within about 10 years, it says that Naomi's two sons pass away as well. And so, and so now Naomi is, is stuck in this foreign land. She has two daughter-in-laws attached kind of, I guess you could say, at her hip that she is also responsible for. And she actually finds out that the famine that forced her and her husband to leave Bethlehem to begin with has actually subsided and now there is enough food to sustain them. And so she returns back to Bethlehem. And when the people see her coming, we, we see that they are excited and they're like, hey, is, is, that, is that Naomi? Is, is she back? They have this enthusiasm for her presence, but look at what she says. Back to their enthusiasm, her response is, don't call me Naomi anymore. Naomi actually means pleasantness. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Don't call me pleasant instead. Call me Mara, a word that means bitterness. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer? When he, it can be translated, has testified against me. 
Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. And the Almighty has sent, because the Almighty has sent such tragedy against me or to me. And we can relate to those feelings. Maybe not on that magnitude of what she is talking about right there. But the question is that once we are in the midst of that, once we are finding ourselves with these types of deep struggling questions and longings, where do we go from there? What do we do? And I'd like to first start to answer that question by asking another question. I, I was recently home in Pennsylvania, and while I'm home, I have a pastor friend that is up there, and so we got together for lunch. And uh, when we got together, we were talking about suffering. We were talking about these, this grief and mourning. And I said, why is it that we as Americans are so easily provoked or triggered to blame God? Like so easy. Why is it that it seems like other cultures that are used to suffering and it's just a, a regular part of their lives, that they view God as the hope in the midst of the suffering. And we actually view God as the suffering in the midst of our hope. Like you would think because of the comfort and convenience that we, we live with, that every once in a while when we have to go through something, we're like, hey, it was inevitable. I guess I got to do it. Right? I guess, I guess this is my time. Like, I got to just be at peace with this. And yes, I guess because we are never climatized to that type of suffering in our lives on a regular basis like other parts of the world are, when it hits, we so quickly arrive at Naomi's feelings and questions, saying, God is against me, blaming him for what is taking place in our lives and really having a hard time with what faith would like, look like in those moments. I asked him another question. Why are we, or are we beyond redemption in the area of suffering as Americans? Like, can God teach us with our cultural reality, is God still able to kind of break through and teach us like he is able to teach those that live within suffering on a regular basis? And the answer is, he, he can redeem us even with our cultural realities, just like he has been doing before Christ and since Christ and in other cultural realities as well. But are we going to be the global experts on suffering as Americans? Maybe not. Maybe not, right? Like maybe we can't understand it because of how we have been raised with control and convenience and comfort. And yet, no matter what, God is still working within our reality to teach us and grow us and bring about redemption and reconciliation even in the area of suffering. I am uh, halfway through a memoir called A Mountain of Crumbs. It's a, it's a woman that wrote about her experiences growing up in Soviet Russia. It's pretty interesting. There are some slow moments throughout her childhood, but the one that I think has stood out to me the most and the one that I have enjoyed the most is when she talks about learning English. And she is with her English teacher, who is older than her. She, at the time, is around 9 to 10 years old. And she reads this sentence. Helen and her new husband lost their privacy when her mother moved across the street. 
okay? She reads that sentence in her English book, and she, the nine-year-old, and the adult English teacher cannot understand what the English word privacy means based off of that sentence. I say that sentence, and the first thing we think is everyone loves Raymond. There has been a TV show written about the reality of a in-law family living across the street from you and how that infringes on your privacy, right? Because even now in America, to live in the same town as your family does is a big stretch, right? It's a big stretch. And so to live across the street from them is like, okay, we may be getting a little close. But for the Russians growing up in Soviet Russia... They're used to having grandparents, aunts, uncles living in a small apartment with them. Your extended family was under one roof. And so to try to understand this English word privacy, when it actually would have been an expansion of blessing of getting them out of your apartment and across the street was impossible for her and for her teacher. And I think sometimes that's how we are with suffering as well. And yet God is using this suffering and forcing us to come to certain places of growth in the midst of it. I think the real answer that I have found in my own life when it comes to going through things that in circumstances that I would have never planned, wouldn't have wished on a worse enemy, is to wrestle. It is to wrestle, to scuffle, to, to go to God, to go to community, to just kind of work through the muck and the mud of it. It is to just keep grappling with these hard realities that are taking place in my life or in the that are taking place in, in those that I love. It's to wrestle. And we see that there are great sufferers in Scripture who ask the same questions that we ask now. They have been asking it for centuries upon even thousands of years. These questions have been discussed. Sometimes we think wrestling is actually a sign that we have no faith. But I would argue based off of my own experience that it actually is a sign that there is faith. If you think about in your family growing up, uh, with your friends growing up, every once in a while when there was some type of scuffle, some type of argument that took place, every once in a while, the words, you're not worth my time, would come out of my mouth, and I'm assuming your mouth as well. Meaning what? This whole thing isn't worth it to me. Having to deal with the drama of this relationship, I'm done. I'm over it. But in reality, you wrestle, you, you argue, you figure things out with what? With the ones that you care about with the ones that mean something to you. And in the same way, that wrestling in the midst of faith, that not giving up, that waking up every day and saying, God, I don't understand what is happening and I am so uncomfortable right now, and yet I am still coming to you, is the sign of faith in the midst of the suffering. It is actually when you stop wrestling that you show that your faith is not present. 
There's something that happens as God is, is wrestling with us. And I don't mean wrestling in some cheesy podcasty like Jacob way where he wrestled with God all night and then he was named Israel. I don't mean it like that type of physical. I'm talking about just this inner turmoil between you and God. It's continuing to ask these questions and ask for God to use this suffering in a way that brings so much value and sanctification in your life that grows and refines. Because here's what God wants in the midst of this struggle is he wants that growth. And actually what I've seen is that healthy wrestling forces us to reflection and questioning. As I have found, wrestling has exposed anger. It has exposed bitterness in my life. It's exposed contempt in my life. And what Henry Nouwen says is, is as this injustice is done to me personally, what I feel like is injustice is done to my plans and my timing and, and everything that I wanted, as, as suffering takes place, it produces or we see our anger, bitterness, and contempt. And then what Henry Nouwen says, the, one of Pete's favorite authors in the Genesee Diary, is that anger often reveals then how you feel, how you think about yourself, and how important you have made your own ideas and insights. Did you catch that? Suffering and then wrestling exposes entitlement. God, how could you do this to me? I follow you. Like, I, don't, I don't deserve this. Given my money, my time, my energy, my effort to your kingdom, and this is how you repay me? See, wrestling exposes that entitlement. It exposes the ego that we bring to God. It exposes what he says, these thoughts and these insights about how important we feel we are and how important those things are as well. The destability, destabilization, I don't know. Whatever that word is, you guys know where I'm headed with that. Instability, thank you. I love it when the audience gets a chance to like feedback a little bit. It happens in youth all the time. Is what actually starts to reveal and expose what's going on inside that has kind of been hidden for a while. I remember probably year, probably 10 years ago, a, a football team probably was the Steelers, all right? The Steelers lost a game to a team that they should not have lost the game to in the regular season. Okay, this is a regular season of, you know, this, this happens all the time. Cowboy fans, you guys can relate. All I have to say, Jets, 2019, and you know exactly where I'm headed with this. All right, just this, they had lost a game that they should not have lost. They were more talented. They, they should have literally kind of mopped the field with this other team. And the Steelers do this quite often. And if it was the Steelers, I remember Tomlin saying at the end of the game in a press conference, being very honest and open, he said, you know what? I actually don't mind during the regular season losing one or two of these types of games. Because something happens to your team when, you, when your expectations of what were supposed to happen don't happen perfectly, and now you walk away with a failure or a weakness or something that just hasn't lived up to how you want. Because now what? It exposes us. And it shows us where we can become a better team. 
Didn't mind it during the regular season because he knew that by the end of the season, that loss, that wrestling, having to figure some things out was actually going to help that team to grow going into the part of the season that matters the most. And so it is when we are forced to have these areas of our heart, these thoughts exposed that should not be present in the life of a follower of Christ and the suffering and the wrestling is what actually start to expose it and remove it. The second thing that, that healthy forms of wrestling do that I have seen personally in my life is it forces vulnerability. It forces this transparency in our lives. The, uh, probably I would say the, at least the American uh, expert on the topic of vulnerability, shame, vulnerability, done so many hours of study on it, is Dr. Brene Brown. Some of you are familiar with her. She's dead, ted, done TED Talks before, great books. Uh, the one that my mom recently bought for me is a book called Daring Greatly, where she discusses vulnerability. And she says the number one myth that centers around the topic of vulnerability is this, that vulnerability is weakness. And the problem, the reason why this is a dangerous view to have, Dr. Brown explains, is that vulnerability is the cradle of emotions. What happens is we start viewing feelings as weaknesses as well. She asks the question, why do we view vulnerability when other people do it as courageous and a strength, but when we do it or are asked to do it as weakness in our own lives? She says even the etymology and the definition of the words vulnerability and weakness are so far opposed to each other that vulnerability is opening yourself up to attack. All right? It is being capable of being wounded or damaged, and it actually takes courage to do that, whereas weakness is the inability to withstand an attack or damage. That courage is what God wants, and that suffering and that wrestling and struggling in the midst of it is what sometimes forces us to be vulnerable with him. When we look throughout Scripture, not that we're going to look at any one in particular today, we see that Job is at the top of the wrestlers throughout Scripture. Like he's one of the professional wrestlers of Scripture. Just put some spandex on that guy. We see that Naomi, like we said, who has to wrestle some things and plans that didn't go her way. I didn't know this until the last couple of years, but as you read through the major and the minor prophets, you see that these men and women that God was using throughout Israel's time are having to wrestle and struggle through things that are taking place that they themselves may not deserve because of how loyal they are to God, and yet they are seeing their people have to wrestle. We see Paul in the New Testament is, is vulnerable not only with God, but with his congregation that he's writing to in 2 Corinthians. But another one of those professional wrestlers is obviously King David in the Psalms. He has this transparency with God that is similar to the phrase lead singer asking those questions during You Found Me. Questions like, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? Why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning, is what David says. And then he, even in just another spot that is not even found in Psalms, that is in First Chronicles, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? God wants that type of transparency. And sometimes when everything is going great in our lives, we don't want to have vulnerability. Nothing has been exposed. Everything in our minds and in our lives seems pretty great. But the moment there is some type of suffering, some type of circumstances that we don't love, guess what? God uses that to push us towards vulnerability. I'll even be vulnerable with you. I'll be honest with you, all right? A few, a few weeks ago, I'm telling you, I was like, God, I really don't want to talk to you right now. I know I need to talk to you, but I really don't want to talk to you. Like, things going on, I just, you're like the last person, but you're the one that I know I need. So I read Hebrews 4, right at the end of Hebrews 4, where Jesus is the priest that understands us in our weaknesses. And this is like the worst theological understanding of the Trinity, but I actually played like good cop, bad cop with God the Father and Jesus, God the Son. I was like, uh, based off what Hebrews 4.15 says, God the Father, I don't really want to talk to you right now because I feel like your hand is against me, but if Jesus understands what I'm going through, then I will talk to him. So I played like good cop, bad cop with God even in this moment of vulnerability of just saying, Jesus, this is what's going on in my life. This is what's happening. This is how I'm feeling. And I know that is like the worst probably theological approach that you can have for the Trinity, okay? So now I'm not being invited to marriage conferences or to any conferences that involve uh, the Trinity. That's okay. But that was just a moment of vulnerability where I was crying out saying the same things that these men and women, these, these authors throughout Scripture have been saying in these moments of vulnerability to God. He doesn't just want it this, this vulnerability with him, he also wants it with his, within our community as well. Ironically, we spent so much of these last few months to start the year 2020 and to end 2019 discussing the importance of community. And then we found ourselves in the COVID crisis and weren't able to fully flesh out all of that. And yet, even in the midst of that, God's priority level on being vulnerable with the trusted community in our lives has not changed. Whether you were suffering before COVID started or now you find yourself suffering because of COVID or other things that have happened in the spring and fall, God still has the same priority for you being vulnerable with him but not stopping there, you being vulnerable with people around you as well. And let me just say something that I have learned from experience over the last few years. When you pray and find and are blessed by those types of relationships, where you can literally sit down, where you can jump on FaceTime, you can Zoom call, whatever you need to do, and you can be honest and open about what is happening in your life, you wonder how you ever survived without that. You wonder how you ever got through anything before without being that vulnerable with other people and them being vulnerable with you, knowing that they support you, they're praying for you, they are on your team, they're going to God daily on your behalf. And I wonder 
why would I ever view this as a weakness? Why would I ever view this as something that I wouldn't want to do? There's such blessing and benefit. And ultimately, through this wrestling, through this exposure, through this vulnerability that we now have, we see that God is leading us to a place of humility, of better kingdom perspective, of dependence on him. We see spiritual and or physical blessings the end of the wrestling, at the end of the struggle. We also see these intimate and meaningful relationships. You get to the end of Job's story, this horrific story and these questions that he is asking and the horrible advice that he's being given. And then God, what? Pete did Job a couple weeks ago. God asks him questions. Oh yeah, you want to ask me questions? Let me ask you questions. And Job walks away saying this in Job 42. I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. I'd only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my eyes. The the humility of the creative order is now in Job's life. Instead of him being God himself, it's now like an obvious, nope, you are God. And what I had thought and what I had seen about you and how things work in your, in your creation is not how it actually goes down. And there's a humility that takes place in Paul's life. I said, he is vulnerable not only with God, but also with his community because we see at the end of, uh, or I should say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 9 and 10, we, we know that Paul has this, this thorn in his flesh. And he says that on three different times, I begged the Lord to take it away. And look what he says. Each time he, God said back to me, my grace is all you need. Depend on me. Depend on me. My power works best in weaknesses. And so now Paul says that he is glad to boast about these weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in insults and hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. Why? Because he has learned dependence through the suffering, through the wrestling. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul doesn't say he tolerates weaknesses. I just kind of put up with my suffering, with my trial. He says what? I rejoice in them. Because it has forced me into a different spiritual reality that God wants to have where I am constantly dependent on his power through everything that takes place in my life. In Naomi's story, we find out, if you're not familiar with it, that Ruth comes back to Bethlehem with her. She meets Boaz, a relative. Boaz gets married to Ruth in kind of a weird, like, cultural, you know, thing. She's, like, laying at his feet one night, and he's like, what the heck is a woman laying at my feet for? And, you know, all that kind of stuff. Doesn't happen much anymore. But, but out of that suffering, we find out that she now has a grandchild, and now she is just kind of blessed, and her name, Naomi, this pleasantness is back in her life. And without her even fully understanding, 
She is now in the story of not just the genealogical line to King David, who plays such a massive role in Israel, Israelite history, but is in line to the Messiah, Christ, as well, through her connection to Ruth and Boaz. Like she received some type of spiritual blessing through all of that. But she is a part of a story in which we have received the spiritual, not just the physical. This, uh, what was that, man, this last week? We, we generally, we normally have had a grad party, this, this celebration for all of our students that graduate our, our ministry. And I'm actually, I'm wearing the shirt right now, Hillside Natives. Uh, they are native to Hillside. They graduated from Hillside. Uh, Nick came up with that idea, brilliant idea by Nick. And we normally like to have this big celebration out in the community space and get together and eat and just say a few words. And we finally had to give up on that idea. It just wasn't going to happen. And so instead, we did what everybody is kind of forced to do. We dropped food off at each graduate's house that wanted to be involved with it. And we had just kind of a Zoom call. And, and normally, I'm not going to lie, I say the same few things every single year uh, because they are probably what I would say is in normal circumstances, the best things that I can say to someone that is kind of leaving my ministry. And this year, I just felt compelled to say a few different things. And one of the things that I said to the students is that over this transition of your life, these next few years, this next phase, who knows what is gonna be happening in our world? But I told them, I said, it doesn't scare me if you wrestle with your faith as you figure out how it, it kind of enters this new type of living and way of thinking. It doesn't scare me at all to wrestle with your faith and wrestle with God. What scares me is if you don't wrestle, and you should. I told them that the first three years of college for me, as amazing and as, as fun as some elements were and the friendships that I made and the professors that I got to come in contact with, the first three years of college were almost a living hell of just wrestling going to God saying, God, I don't understand things that I thought I used to understand about you and our relationship. I, I, I'm not sure what my purpose is and what you want from me. And just hours upon hours, just wrestling and struggling and just going through these things and feeling like there was no light at the end of the tunnel. And you want to know what happened as I continued to wrestle is the exposure started to happen. And the blessing that came out on the other side is kind of this moment that has springboarded me into my adult life because God started showing me, Mike, you view me and think of me in ways that are not biblical. You have brought this, this ego and this perfectionism and this legalism to our relationship and it can't be present anymore. And that misery that I felt in those years because that way of thinking had finally caught up. It took God three years to say, this is what's going on. And I told them that because of the wrestling, now I cannot forget those truths. If God had taught me those things the first 
week that I said, God, what the heck is going on right now? I would have forgotten it in a week. Because it took three years, it is something that has lasted this entire decade and will last another decade. Wrestle. Get gritty, college students, high school students, junior high. Keep going. Do not give up. A couple years ago, uh, I think Pete was going through a book he just kind of mentioned it. It's called Enduring Divine Absence. It's actually not a book. It's a, it's a long essay that has kind of been turned and bound into a short book. But in this book, or in this long essay, the author is taking on the new atheist idea and this kind of, I guess, way of arguing to try to bring more people to their side on things is that when you ask God to move or speak profoundly in his life, and he doesn't do it, he must not exist or else he would reveal himself, he would reveal himself in bigger and greater ways. It's too obvious, right? Wouldn't you do that if you were asked to reveal yourself? And so through this essay, the author is taking on that kind of way of thinking. And he gets the whole way through the essay, and the part that has stood out to me the most is when he says this. Perhaps indeed, atheism is not bravery at all, but capitulation. Perhaps it doesn't take courage to say there must not be a God even though I want there to be a God. Perhaps it has nothing to do with courage or bravery in any way. It has to do with surrender, with giving up. Perhaps it is an intellectual, spiritual, and psychological failure to endure. Has nothing to do with being smarter than anybody in the room has nothing to do with bravery. If anything, it has to do with cowardice. To in the moments when you find yourself in that struggle and that scuffle with questions and God and realities that are taking place in your life, perhaps it has more to do with whether or not you just say, God, I need the strength to wake up today and continue on has nothing to do with your IQ, has nothing to do with what side of tracks you live on, has to do with the fact that you look to him to persevere through the moments in life when you don't want to go anymore and you just want to give up. But don't. Continue to endure. Continue to wrestle and see what happens on the back end of that. See the blessing, the humility, the growth, the refining that takes place. Students, adults, do not give up. Let me pray. But when I pray, I know that not everybody in this room connects with this message right now. Okay, that's, that's perfectly fine. But I honestly assume there are more people than maybe I even think in this room or online that needed God's 
word to them and encouragement. And so as I'm praying, I just want to ask that you be praying and be vulnerable with God where you are right now in this moment. And maybe, maybe if you say, Mike, you know what? I have actually kind of given up. Like I'm here right now, I'm present or I'm watching online, but the wrestling is not happening anymore in my life. This is just now out of tradition and out of habit. Can I just ask you to consider, to consider that maybe God wants you in the midst of the wrestling so that there is some type of breakthrough on the backside. And if that means that while I'm praying or at some point today you say, honey, can you take the kids so that I can have 30 minutes alone with God and be vulnerable? Then that's what you do. And you say, God, I don't have the strength to endure what has been happening in my life right now, but it's got to come from you. I've got to humbly seek you on this. Then would you do that today? Would you consider that today with us as a community in your own personal life? Let me pray. Father, we're here. We're here to admit that we don't have it all. That God on our own, that we can't get through these types of deep personal and spiritual questions and naggings that are taking place in our life in these circumstances that we would have never thought of or asked for to be present in our lives. But God, in these moments, would you give this community the perseverance, the strength, the grittiness to endure so that we can experience what comes on the back end of all of this. This growth and this strength and this faith in you. Father, even though At times, we don't want our hope to be in you. Will you please remind us that it has to be. It has to. Father, thank you for your grace this morning. Thank you for your grace this week as we go about our lives in your name. Amen. We are so glad you joined us today online. We appreciate you being here, and we're looking forward to next week. I want to remind you of two things before we go. First, here's the QR code again if you're a visitor and want to get plugged in at Hillside. Our leaders can connect with you after you fill out the form. The other thing I want to say is we know this has been a difficult time to go through right now, maybe as a family or wherever you're at in life. We want to be able to help you and reach you where you're at, whether it be through prayer or care or finding support through what you're going through. So you can do that at this email right here. Our care ministry is ready to go to get in touch with you and see how we can support you in this time so that we can give and continue to be a community that does life together. Again, Hillside, thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.